0: We're on a mission from God. Wendy? it. So I got that going for Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong weight to quit sniffing blue.
1: Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human
0: being. I thought they
1: smelled bad on the outside.
2: Welcome to Vintage Video. We're rewatching the 80s, so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time. I'm Patrick O'Reilly.
0: I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells.
2: And today marks the fortieth anniversary of the release of Brew Baker on June 20th, 1980. It was written by W. D. Richter, based on a story by Richter and Arthur A. Ross, and an uncredited story credit for Bob Rafelson, suggested by the book Accomplices to the Crime, written by Thomas O. Merton and Joe Hyams, directed by Stuart Rosenberg and also a little bit Bob Rapleson, and released by 20th Century Fox.
0: I don't understand this suggested by. Did you get any more information about what the hell suggested by means? Yes.
2: We'll go into that now. Okay. The film is based on the real-life experiences of warden Thomas Merton, co-author with Joe Hyams of the 1969 book Accomplices to the Crime, the Arkansas Prison Scandal. In 1967, he was hired by Governor Winthrop Rockefeller. That's a classy name of the rockefellers winthrop rockefeller to reform arkansas's tucker state and cummins state prison farms but merton was dismissed less than a year into the job because his work was creating too much bad publicity for the state's penal system in particular the discovery of numerous graves belonging to prisoners who'd been killed in these prisons much of the squalid conditions violence and corruption depicted in the film was the subject of a 1970 federal court case holt versus sarver in which the federal court ruled that the Arkansas prison system violated inmates' constitutional rights and ordered reform. The first script written by Arthur Ross was the true story, but Ross passed on the opportunity to direct. Duties to direct the fictionalized adaptation, which is the reason we get stories suggested by. It's not the actual story in the book. It's kind of like when time ran out.
0: Yeah, but I thought that generally you would do a based on. Like, based on is the terminology that we tend to see when it's not an exact
2: apparently it was loose enough that it wasn't it wasn't based on anymore but i think in when time ran out they still used based on even though it's even less based on the story than this is i
1: mean they they changed the characters names and they changed enough i guess of the events because like he never went in uh, to the prison
2: right so As as a as an inmate that was not part of the real story but duties to direct the fictionalized adaptation by W.D. Richter of Ross's draft, were dismissed by George Roy Hill, Robert Wise, Mark Robson, and Robert Mulligan. That's some good people in there. Yeah. Uh, Richter achieved success in the mid to late 70s with Slither and his Body Snatchers remake, the 78 version, my favorite. And uh, Paramount commissioned him to do a rewrite on the script that he had turned in before. They passed on the finished script, at which point Alan J. Pacula expressed an interest in directing, but... He wanted too much time to start, so producer Ron Silverman got the script to director Bob Rafelson to direct. Paul Newman and Jack Nicholson both turned down the role before Redford. Redford was attached for a paycheck of 3 million dollars. Director Bob Rafelson was fired after 9 days of shooting for already being 5 days behind schedule. <laughs> Wait, yeah. what, what? In 9 days he managed to already be 5 days, so he was he was only 4 days into the scheduled <laughs> That's bad. shoot and uh, also for allegedly assaulting 20th century fox executive richard berger an accusation that he eventually admitted to but to hear him tell it it was as much assault as what brubaker does to the doctor in this film okay
1: he did it for five days
2: (laughs) yes he just beat a fox executive for five days on set and that cost them nine days worth of time richter and ross received academy award nominations for their writing after the film rafelson fired a breach of contract and slander suit against fox for 10 million dollars he also asked for 500000 in directing fees for the nine days that he spent on set <laughs> and $100,000 in deferrals and profit percentage. And he won the case. So I don't oh, know. Really? I don't know how much he was actually awarded, but he won the suit that he filed.
0: That's surprising.
2: So we start the film in pre-dawn as a bus is leaving town for Wakefield prison fully loaded with new inmates. They stop at early light when a pair of trustees is carrying a wounded man onto the bus the trustees are also prisoners but for some reason they're allowed to have rifles to staff the prison one prisoner in particular played by robert redford is particularly disturbed by what he sees uh we call this character collins i think for now the prisoners are marched through mud into wakefield and then into a barber shop where everyone's getting their required haircuts but it doesn't really seem like they took a lot off uh, well
0: no well, they were paying off the barber
2: to not cut their hair but it just seems like at least one of these guys would have been like i don't care so, like
0: some of them some of them did get haircuts
2: well none of the main characters have haircuts for the rest of this yeah, movie because
0: they paid him off
2: yeah it's just weird to me that literally every actor was like no don't cut my hair and everyone that wasn't an actor was like i'm fine with it yeah it's a weird coincidence <laughs> then they are moved into the bunks where there's not enough beds for everybody and one of the trustees says that nobody gets a bed until someone gets out or dies because there's just straight not enough beds for everyone We have like a long montage of listless prisoners here in the barracks just playing games and talking to each other and eventually one of them is grabbed and they say that they want you down at the bars and he's like but i didn't do anything i don't understand why this is happening and they drag him away and he gets tied up to this it's just a row of bars and he's beaten with this short whip by some of the trustees and he they leave him hanging there on the bars the next day, a pair of prisoners are forced to stand barefoot on tops of glass bottles for an extended period of time. I, I, I guess that's a punishment. I thought I thought the
1: camera was gonna pan up and they were gonna have like a noose
2: or something oh, around yeah. their necks.
0: That was my expectation too.
2: I think it's just super painful, but uh, they seem pretty good at it at this point. So yeah, it, it doesn't seem like it's their first time on there. The prisoners are put to work in the field slinging hose the second in command bothers the warden about doing some paperwork that needs his attention but he doesn't seem to care the next day someone finally unties the hanging prisoner and uh, a man sweeping the floors with one messed up eye shakes his head just disappointed by the whole scene on a quick break from the field work a fight breaks out between some prisoners an uninvolved prisoner wearing sunglasses pops a switchblade or like a uh it's
1: an exacto knife or some kind like like a shiv shiv, yeah some
2: kind of sharp piece of metal He tries to break up the fight before the guards fire a few shots in the air. Switchblade guy is forced to hold his friend down while he's getting whipped by the guards because they determine he caused the fight.
1: Yeah, he caused the fight by being, he was being hassled uh, because the night previously he had been raped. Yeah. And uh, they were like, oh, yeah, I bet you're liking that. Um, So he threw his plate of food at him and
2: that started the fight, but he got punished for it in the end. Yeah, and his friend had to hold him down for it. Back in the prison hospital, hospital in quotes, uh, prisoners are selling their blood for money as the doctor is stepping out of the room. Uh, He's not offering much care to the patients. There's one who's beaten almost into a coma.
1: not going to make a joke about
2: blood money? No, I'm (laughs) not. Unacceptable. In the cafeteria, Switchblade asks for a sandwich and they tell him that they're all out. But after he insists, the guy behind the counter tries to sell food off of a trustee's plate from in the kitchen. He's like, are you done with that? And he's like, yeah, two bits and so he brings this it's like a piece of steak with one bite taken out of the yeah, middle it's of like,
1: it it's a yeah it's,
0: well, i think it's just the gristle left on the steak
2: yeah it's
1: like there's barely it's been eaten
2: around basically yeah. he brings it back to the counter and then redford tries to outbid him and says 75 cents and then he says a dollar and switchblade gets the meat as they're walking back to their tables switchblade tells redford
0: You just cost me 50 cents it was needed elsewhere
2: messed up my day by trying to outbid me on this the regular food that they're forced to eat in this prison just has maggots on it and everyone's urging redford to just eat it because of the protein we cut back outside as a tractor is loading wood onto a truck a local carpenter is angry that it's not as much wood as he needs from the prison farm huey is basically trying to negotiate with this guy it's uh mm at walsh is playing the character yeah he's great it seems like he's getting shortchanged here and he's upset about it and huey's like promising to make it up to him Later, he takes a couple prisoners, including Redford, to a local diner where they are forced to carry frozen meat into the kitchen. And again, it seems like he's shortchanging this guy. He says, What the hell is it? You told me two steers. I need two steers. I don't think. I'm sorry. I just couldn't do it this way. He one. says, I'll make it up to you somehow. Just, you got to deal with this for now. I'm sorry. I thought I had more. And he's like, well, suppose I stop giving you free beer. He's like, look, it's we'll, we'll make up for this. It'll happen eventually. The prisoners return back to the truck unsupervised, but uh, this guard Huey is allowed to just walk into the back of the restaurant and into the attached home where the guy who owns the diner lives with his sister, mm-hmm. of which this guy uh,
1: uh, Huey Huey Raunch has yeah. a relationship with. Right. So so I, I I don't. They, these trustees seem to have an awful lot of freedom, and they they don't seem to really care about these other prisoners trying. to Are they to outside
2: on. the prison here? Yeah, they're they're. Yeah. No. Like they're out in public, right? Yeah, they're, they're, I think
0: so.
1: there's like a there's like a there's a restaurant with a bar?
0: Yeah, I mean, there yeah. has to be. The the restaurant can't be on the prison grounds. Yeah.
2: It's yeah. just weird that he's allowed to walk around anywhere and and he has a gun and everything and that he's allowed to just walk into local businesses and they trust him in a car with other prisoners.
0: Is the implication here that they're selling the meat that was supposed to go to the prisoners?
1: Correct. Okay. So the the, pri- the prison has a farm. But the goods on the farm are not being distributed to the prisoners. Like the cows are being
2: sold to people outside. And the same thing with food that is being shipped by the state to the farm to feed the prisoners specifically. But yeah, he sneaks into this home attached to the diner and sneaks up behind this girl in a... She's like brushing her teeth at a kitchen sink. And it surprises her. And then we realize very quickly that they're actually in a relationship. Another trustee named Floyd dresses down the prisoners for taking too long loading the wood. After multiple lectures, one prisoner purposely breaks the chain on the truck to dump the whole load of logs on the ground yeah, and th- th- waste everyone's time.
1: Yeah, this is a uh, this is Bullen. Yeah. Uh, he got a big old, like, wooden spike through his hand. Oof. Yeah. And he was just taking the time to pull it out when they hassled him for, like, sitting down on the job. And that's when he...
2: Got to fed
1: break up. The chain. yeah. He
2: breaks the chain and lets all the lock roll off. Never break the chain.
0: Never break the chain. Yeah, the size of that thing that's stuck in his hand is so disturbing.
2: Yeah, it was pretty gross. The next night, Switchblade is informed that he has a phone call, and screams while he's being dragged away. Redford, as the Collins character, asks, "What phone call is code for?" But nobody answers. They just kind of shake their heads and scoff at him for not knowing, because but, clearly it's just being beaten.
1: Well, though he seems like he seems like Jack Nicholson at the end of Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, maybe it's electroshock or something. Because uh, he's just totally out of it. He's he's just walking under the power of other people putting him in a direction.
2: Yeah. The next day, yeah, he, he looks pretty messed up. A few men are selected in the yard to attend to the death row prisoners mm-hmm. and empty their buckets. They have little buckets in their cells. Redford and Larry Lee bullen the the current he's currently a zombie from having been beaten or electrocuted all night are chosen to do this when larry lee gets into the death row area suddenly one of the prisoners is holding him hostage in exchange for a conversation with the man which he means the warden when he says the man but the trustees don't care about switchblade so the ransom doesn't work the inmate here the death row inmate played by morgan freeman starts singing R-E-S-P-E-C-T, which if you'll recall is a song sung by Aretha Franklin from our previous episode, released the same day, Blues Brothers. Some
0: fucking respect around here. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. I know what it means to me. But you want little respect. But you need little respect. All I'm asking all the respect and come home Be with come home. Thank you.
2: Hey. This is apparently where quote unquote Collins draws the line and asks to be let into the cell, claiming to be the man. But here I don't think the the other two trustees Yafet Koto and the other guy, I don't think they know that he's serious yet. No.
1: but and Morgan Freeman's character isn't totally altogether there either. Yeah. Uh, so he's able to convince him. And I thought that this, this was going to go a totally different way. I thought that he was going to, I, because I, I, I read up about the movie, so I know who he is for real. Yeah. But I thought what was going to happen was, I thought he was going to stay in undercover longer. And I thought that this was just going to be like a joke, like to the guards. Like he's telling Morgan Freeman.
0: I'm the man. I am. I am the man. I'm the new warden here. My name is Henry Brubaker. <laughs>
2: Oh, that he was gonna come out and be like, I can't believe he bought that or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh but
1: then it was like, No, oh, this
2: whole scene takes a turn. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Uh, I actually completely forgot when he told me what this movie was about. Or wasn't listening. But either way <laughs> 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 Either way, I thought he was joking here, like he was just trying to get his way. So I think if you didn't if you went into this movie not knowing anything about what this movie was, you might think what I was thinking, which was, oh, he's just trying to gain this guy's trust and then he's going to get in there and save this guy and and that's not actually what's happening
2: and based on the reaction from yafet koto and from the joe spinel character they both seem to think the same thing that he's just fucking with him because he's of a diminished capacity for reason and he's just going to buy whatever you say so we can get this guy out of the cell but he he says i am the warden i'm the new warden here and he says how come you look like a scumbag And he says because i'm trying to fool those boys out there And he looks into his eyes, Morgan Freeman does, and he can see that he's being serious. And he also knows that these other guys don't believe him and they think he's screwing with them. So he starts laughing maniacally and demands a whole laundry list of things that he's had in his head. He wants a paint job for the whole death row area. He asked for yellow specifically. He wants a window in his cell. He wants liquor and a TV and maybe a skylight. He's just coming up with more and more things that he wants as he goes and uh, brubaker says well why don't you come in here and show me where the picture window should be and as soon as freeman gets into the smaller cell brubaker turns tail and locks him in it and as he steps out uh, he points to larry lee the switchblade guy who's still collapsed on the ground from having been choked out and he says you need to get this man some medical attention you paint the cell whatever color freeman wants basically So on their way back to the main office, Yafet Koto is telling him, you need to stop screwing around. Like, all I gotta do is raise my right hand and that tower guard will blow you away. And he says, I think you're gonna make a great escort. Why don't we keep moving? So together they walk to the warden's office and Brubaker just goes right into the office and lets him know that he's been relieved of duty. But the warden thinks this is just a prisoner so he pulls a gun out of his desk Mm -hmm. to point it at him but then he unconvincingly like lifts off lifts off information about a guy is like
1: what (laughs) you
2: got it most of it wrong (laughs) yeah you feel like this is information that you'd want to have memorized before you went in undercover
0: well and also as a way to convince them that you're the new warden knowing things about the other prisoners is not super convincing yeah
2: what should have happened was call so-and-so right now and they'll explain to you who i am well but he would never make that call that, well, that, that, that's or he would that. say so-and-so is going to call in yeah, 15 minutes that that's what i would have done. Yeah. but instead he says to prove to them that he's the actual new warden he's just giving information like oh this guy's name is something and he screws up the guy's name and he says he's been here for three years in june and he's like well july you're close but it's it's kind of like watching like crossing over with john edwards like (laughs) (laughs) like, i guess well i knew a guy whose name began with b maybe he is the warden
1: (laughs) uh, i'm sensing you know someone with a name a first name that's right
2: (laughs) i'm guessing some of you believe in ghosts is that correct wow all of you what are the chances uh But uh, even though he screws up these details, they seem to believe him because of how close he's getting. And uh, the outgoing warden is just about as pissed off as he is delighted to be finally free of this prison. First order of business, Brubaker speaks with some of the inmates. He gets a megaphone, and he goes up to the fence, and they line everybody up to listen to him. And he lets them know that he's the reform warden that they might have heard about that was sent here from the governor's office. He holds up the whip that he's seen people tortured with, and he says, that's going away. And any trustee caught using this will lose his position. One of the other trustees says, so what do we do if we catch someone escaping? We just sort of wave them back in. And He says, shoot him, because he's trying to get across the point right away that I'm not saying there's no rules here and trying to escape is still a fatal prospect, but we're not going to be treating you any worse than we're supposed to as wards of the state. So he starts with a little bit of critical talk about how they probably don't respect anyone, including themselves but eventually he gets around to outlawing things like the sale of blood and demanding that prisoners be served the food that the farm is making and that it's not sold behind their backs. Lillian Gray and John Deitch show up in the middle of this speech in a car, and I guess they're here to swear him in or to see yeah. that he starts the job. Deitch is trying to get a feel for him. He asks what he plans to start with, and Brubaker says, blow up the whole place, start over from scratch, and he says, you're making a joke he says yeah, i guess i am in the background lillian is on the phone with i think the press telling them all the information about the new warden so that they can because they were trying to keep it under wraps until he was sworn in so that this whole undercover boss scheme would pay <laughs> off after they leave brubaker inquires about the wounded man from the bus he wrote in on and he's informed that we must have sent him out to the hospital and he says well check on it tell me tell me what actually happened because i have like a list of things in my head that i need to address and a dying person is first on that list and what were the results of that we'll never know we never found the guy but we did see him the day after in the hospital just kind of screwed up and the doctor didn't do anything for him so i'm guessing he didn't get sent to the hospital uh he also orders a dozen pair of sunglasses here but his his soon-to-be assistant purcell gives him basically the lowdown on the prison staff and trying not to insult them he basically says they're all a bunch of dummies
0: well he's trying to make himself look good because he wants a promotion
2: right and he's saying these people don't like to do paperwork and he reluctantly admits that he's in for holding up a card game but claims he was being cheated immediately after leaving the office purcell has to force an inmate named abraham out of the larger building that the office is off of abraham clearly has something he wants to say to the warden but purcell is running interference on that because that's what he's used to doing for the previous warden i presume or because he knows what Abraham's going to say and he doesn't want him to say it. Sunglasses in hand, Brubaker lets the death row inmates out into the yard. He says that they are to be let out once a day instead of the previous every six months, which is ridiculous. Plus,
1: how long are they on death row? Yeah. This doesn't seem like the state, the kind of state that uh, not waits Texas. around. <laughs> I'll
2: tell you that much. There's no way they waited six months in Texas without seeing the sky or God. Larry Lee Bullen shows up at Brubaker's living quarters that night. At his request, going over his file, Brubaker determines that he's basically a victim of the three strikes law. He was caught trying to escape from a reformatory school with his twin brother, and his brother was hit by a train. Quote: That's what the paperwork says. Bolin explains that his brother was actually shot and placed on the track so it would look like he got hit by the train.
1: <laughs> he got hit by a train full of bullets. Yeah, he got hit by the bullet
2: train. <laughs> After that, he got arrested for stealing a 65 Pontiac sedan. So that was his first technical felony. And he got two years for that. Then he was arrested for stealing a 69 Pontiac convertible. So those were his first two felonies. And then he was collected a third time for misdemeanor vagrancy, which wouldn't have counted against the three strikes law. But that night he was in a drunk tank with six other prisoners and one of them broke the toilet. So they gave him that charge, which is a felony for destruction of city property over $50, which means he gets life in prison. That's how the 3 strikes law works. 3 felonies, doesn't matter which ones. You get life in prison. So, there's lots of murderers in here with him that are going to get out soon, and he has to stay in here forever cuz he stole two cars and broke a toilet. And he didn't even break the toilet. Brewbaker promotes him to trustee in charge of the motor pool since he seems to like driving so much. That night, Coombs, the Uffit Koto character, sits with Brewbaker and gives him the rundown on some of the other trustees. One of them seems to be spying on Brubaker from his watchtower right now. Coombs explains that that guy is a forger, and Brubaker says we should replace all the tower men with one-time killers, not habitual criminals, because they're less likely to reoffend, having gotten it out of their system than people who are in here for repeat offenses. While they're speaking, a call comes through that the rank barracks roof has collapsed in the storm, and there's a lot of injured men. They've all been crushed by falling debris. We see more footage like the spike through the hand of big chunks of wood stabbed through people's chests and backs because this whole ceiling just collapsed in on them. They kill the power to the building and use flashlights to prevent death by electrocution in this big wet pile of people. Later in the hospital, in quotes again hospital, Brubaker argues with the local large hospital about wait times for ambulances. They're telling him that they can't send any ambulances right now. But that the next hospital down the way can even though they're only 20 miles away and it's going to be an hour apparently before any of these men get picked up i said i can't afford no more shut up what did he say nothing it's blood sugar, so you think i
0: can't afford no more shut up
2: because it turns out this doctor is charging people for his care even though he's an employee of the state and is supposed to be helping these people as a requirement of the prison so Brubaker grabs him by his collar and throws him out into the rain and puts another prisoner in charge of all the patients because he seems to know what to do. He has some vague idea of how blood works <laughs> and how uh, cuts are supposed to be covered and taken care of. The next day, Brubaker mentions something uh, about missing food. He just kind of says it in passing as they're walking down a hallway. He says something about missing chili specifically.
1: Yeah, he's talking to, to Willets, and he's like trying to run the math on— how much food they're supposed to be getting and how much food they're
2: actually like consuming yeah and the numbers aren't matching up because of his experience as an inmate brief as it was he went through the cafeteria line and they were running out of food for people which they're not supposed to do so he puts purcell on the case and uh, he also says he needs to buy a shit ton of shoes and purcell's putting up a fight immediately because he's like i i can't just get like a, a random swath of shoe sizes like i need to know exactly how many but then When Brubaker gets to his office, he finds C.P. Woody Woodward, the carpenter from earlier, in his office with a chocolate prune cake in hand. And he's very quick to explain.
0: I hate prunes. They cloud my mind.
2: Woody is here because he heard about the roof. Apparently Purcell gave him a heads up. And he just slides a contract across Brubaker's desk for him to sign to fix the hole. And Brubaker's not stupid. He's already looked over the paperwork and he sees that it was built two years ago by Woody... And he demands that he rebuild it for free now, the way that he should have before. And he says, well, hold on now. we got to talk about this. And he says, well, you guarantee your work, don't you? And Woody says, well, of course I do. But you got to learn to deal with these things. You can't sit around complaining. And he says, I'm not complaining. Are you? Sure sounds like it. Woody gets up and walks around behind him and closes the door. And he reminds Brubaker that he also hasn't been getting much help from the prison lately. Because he's supposed to be getting all this free labor from prisoners and brew points out well that's slave labor and we're not going to do that anymore he points to the the prune cake and he says you got to understand the point ain't whether you like prunes it's the thought that counts you just got to accept it keep your mouth shut and let things run the way they've run for a hundred years brew baker tells him not to expect any slave labor from the prison and to leave and to take this shitty cake with him on the way out woody sorry the, pr- the prune <laughs> yeah take this shit cake with you <laughs> take the shit cake on the way out woody asks purcell whose team he's on and reminds him that this warden will probably be fired very soon but you'll still be here at the prison and i can get back at you when the next warden's here brubaker gets a call from lillian sitting in what looks like the oval office i think she's the president. I, because I, she's like the, the governor's
1: aide or something like that.
2: Yeah, or but she's, she's got a nice office, whatever yeah. it is.
1: Well, I, I was actually assuming that it was actually she was, much like when she was using Brewbaker's office. She's just sitting at his she's, desk. She's, yeah, she's just sitting at the, governor's, the governor's desk. desk. Maybe yeah. that's
2: what's going on. She's already gotten word that he threw Woody out. She tells him that was a bad idea. You're stepping on a lot of toes. And while they speak, Brewbaker is basically training a gun on a rat that's crawling through his office. <laughs> I was really hoping he would shoot it in this scene, but he doesn't. He just kind of draws a bead on it and follows it to a hole and then it disappears. Brewbaker the next day cuts in line at the cafeteria. <laughs> he insists on eating with the inmates but as a show of solidarity, I feel like he should have waited in line to make the point better. Yeah. He just cuts in front of everybody but well,
1: he's also not the only one who's eating there because Willis is in there too and he's a state employee like right there it seems like everyone's eating together, including the trustees. Which, when he was an inmate, the trustees had their own table right inside, inside the, kitchen.
2: the kitchen. Yeah, but now that everyone's eating outside. Coombs seems pissed off about it, but he's kind of impressed to see that uh, that Brewbaker actually sat down out there with all the inmates to eat. Later in the day, out in the fields, Brewbaker finds the uh, corn crops smell like kerosene. Yeah, he determines that someone's dumping kerosene on them to affect the yield of the of their field.
0: Is that a thing?
1: I mean, I guess just contaminating the soil of any kind yeah i I thought that someone was gonna light it on
2: fire
0: that's kind of what i was and Uh, just hadn't
2: gotten around to it yet yeah Yeah. that's possible
1: but yeah like a whole i guess everything's just
2: contaminated now but somehow in the same scene he notices the this truck pulling away as it's leaving it seems to shoot at one of the cows in the field also Mm -hmm. and uh not the livestock yeah he hops in another vehicle and they follow it out to the the cow first and uh, he inspects the cow and sees that it's been shot in the head and that whoever's here trying to to kill the crops is also killing the animals. And they follow the road down to almost the prison property line where there's a small house built. And Purcell and Coombs pretend not to have any idea what's going on, but it's very obvious that they know exactly what's happening. Yeah. Like
1: when he goes to knock on the door, is like, whoever's in there. <laughs> yeah.
2: That was so obnoxious. It made yeah. me angry. <laughs> Brubaker gets out and as he's like sneaking up to approach on the building you hear you hear Purcell shout
0: I don't know who's in there and I don't know what you're up to but we got the new warden from the prison out here and we're probably coming in <laughs>
2: <laughs> and uh it's obviously just to warn whoever's in here of the situation we hear inside a woman say I'm not gonna hide in here like some animal and she answers the door and it's the woman from the diner apparently she lives here with the guard either she was visiting or she actually lives here with him
1: no i I think she was visiting because this is where huey Ranch lives yes this is his home away from home uh complete with tv and
2: and a lot of chili yeah she steps back into the house to drag him to the door because he doesn't want to come to the door and brew just follows her in like without asking because it's all prison property like this house shouldn't be here
1: yeah and and was she 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 had a top
2: on she did and then she takes it back off yeah when he gets into the room where the two of them are arguing she's topless again i think she was like switching her shirt or something but uh she turns to face him with her tits out and brubaker's just standing there staring like unapologetically like nope this is fine this is fine with me the guy's like put those away basically like (laughs) tells her to cover herself up because he doesn't like this guy getting a look at his girlfriend he (laughs) doesn't respond to anything that huey says he's just kind of walking around the house noticing things that have been stolen from the prison i I, I like that that he's like adjusting the picture quality of the tv trying to get the color balance right (laughs) he's like looking through the refrigerator and huey's like oh you want me to get you a beer and he's just like this is all my stuff that you're offering me like this belongs to the prison this doesn't belong to you plus i don't think prisoners get beer this guy does well he
0: does he gets it free from the diner yeah i was gonna say he picks it up when he drops off the meat
2: yeah no but i mean like what
1: you were saying pat that this was supposed to get delivered to the prison
2: right yeah but he's he's the cow that he shot i'm assuming he was actually going to chop up and take back to the diner
0: he did owe them another another he owed owed them some more some more meat
2: steers (laughs) (laughs) that was the unit of measurement the diner guy was using one Um, steer which is uh, equal to (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i i I never learned the metric system but yeah he he, uh while he's looking at this television he's like that's my own private property." and he just yanks it out of the wall and carries it back out to the truck and puts it in the back. Without speaking a word to Huey, they go and bust open the this locked shed to find all the stolen chili that he was complaining about. And Purcell immediately tries to transfer blame to the warden, who is no longer here. He's like,
0: That'd be Warden Renfro's monthly supply, I imagine. Man took baths and that stuff. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and uh, Brubaker's not buying it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love those like... Like that's the best way. Come <laughs> that's up all one. he had.
2: <laughs> He's definitely the worst liar of all the trustees. Brubaker argues with the prison accountant Willet. Yeah, Willits, yeah. Who's in charge of all the purchase orders and he says, You signed off on all these purchases and you knew where they were you were supposed to keep like track of where the stuff went and the inventory and he says, Well, look, I just did whatever the warden told me to. I was just basically he tries to I was just following orders excuse and is promptly fired he tries to lean on his status as a civil servant to defend him but brubaker don't care you're fired get out purcell complains aloud that the purchases will be much harder without Willets here and brubaker says they're going to do it referring to the prisoners he says they're going to have an election and they're going to pick an inmate council and they'll be in charge of making all the purchase orders <laughs> purcell responds under his breath
0: that's a hell of an idea
2: and when forced to repeat himself, he changes the intonation to make it sound complimentary. That's a hell of an idea. Everybody laughs at the guard, Huey, when he comes back to the trustee compound, apparently evicted from his unlawful house on the prison grounds. And that night, they burn the illegal home to the ground. Yeah, <laughs> which is exactly what I wanted. <laughs> like as soon as they show this You're house, so and I was excited. like, that house should not be here. And I was like. As soon as they cut open that shed and found all the chili, it's like, they should just burn this place to the ground. <laughs> and they did it that night. I loved it. I was so happy. Yeah, so they, they just bring a bunch of torches out there and one of the trustees is like, Maybe we should do it this during the day. It'd be a little more covert. And Bolin's like, Yeah, that's probably why we're doing it at night <laughs> to make an example of this. Later the trustees all worry that for sure he's gonna get killed for this or for something that he does soon. He's not long for this prison. Lily and Gray pays him a visit the next day and she condescends to him a lot in the name of compromise she warns him not to step on any toes that he's not going to get anything done for these prisoners if he won't go along with some of what they want from him a crowd of onlookers swarm the prison yard to watch brubaker and the prisoners compete in a game of polo on horseback they all seem to be having fun and very dangerous yeah
1: like they're, they're falling off the horses and just being surrounded
2: by these like galloping horses all around them And Brubaker even pulls one of them off the horse as they're in the middle of the game. But uh, Combs eventually points out, you know, I haven't heard these men laugh like that in years. He's like, doesn't bother you, does it? Uh, We get a quick montage of various prisoners campaigning to join the inmate council. And uh, the selected council meets just outside Brubaker's office. They're waiting for him to sit down with them, but he invites them to start without him because he wants them to make decisions on their own. Larry Lee Bullen insults the coffee they've been provided with caldwell this uh tall he, he kind of looks like a russian character i i don't know like he doesn't talk much so we don't really get a good feel for this the guy character. with the, the guy with the, the, the knit beanie. cap yeah yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, he, everett mcgill
2: yeah is that his name
1: that's the actor's name
2: i don't know the actor
1: oh no what's he from he's from twin peaks uh, people under the stairs
2: okay I've he, seen people under the stairs. I haven't seen Twin Peaks yet.
0: I think it just looks like uh, Jack Nicholson in Cuckoo's Nest.
2: I thought he looked silly and Murphy-ish.
0: Yeah. Yes. You're right. He looks more like him.
2: But uh, he's in a knit cap and he's and he's basically just insulting what they're doing and says it's a big waste of time. And Brew Baker invites him to resign from his position. But eventually, the council starts making some preparations to fix the plumbing in the barracks. Brew Baker tries some of the coffee and looks disgusted immediately. <laughs> I like <laughs> that. Like, oh God. He's like, oh, you're this right. coffee is bad. In the
1: <laughs> it's like this coffee tastes like shit basil it is shit austin but it's not just me then (laughs)
2: uh the stool sample abraham shows up again in the middle of this meeting trying to speak with brubaker and purcell tries to pull him away and coombs is like don't you touch him and then he's like thank you anyway i have to talk to the warden and he's like okay get him out of here yeah (laughs) (laughs) we don't he doesn't need to talk to the warden. he's just kidding get him out of here uh and so they try and shove him away but Brubaker's like come in come into my office while they have this meeting all the bad guys around this table uh namely Caldwell the Joe Spinell character and even Coombs here is like terrified of what Abraham is saying to Brubaker in the office they're just trying to read lips basically because they can't totally hear what's going on in this conversation he learns a few very interesting things from Abraham one his eye is screwed up because he got hit with a bat and chain and rope hard enough to screw up his face He's been serving 38 years of a 35-year sentence and some number of years ago or somewhere around 30 he was in charge of making coffins for a about 200 prisoners who were buried here on the grounds illegally. Mm-hmm. Abraham kind of mumbles to himself while Brew Baker accepts a call. He says something along the lines of "God man, say Abraham." chop them
0: up in tiny little pieces and take them for a walk down in them shadows
2: he tells him that he was asked to bury 200 coffins along a fence somewhere in the field and that he built the coffins himself that's how he knows it happened caldwell and joe Spinell bust into the office and unfortunately brubaker decides now to say will you show me exactly where tomorrow morning (laughs) which is unfortunate brubaker starts to drive away from the prison to meet with some of the other prison board staff, when uh, Coombs urges Brewbaker not to release Abe, to just keep him in prison beyond the end of his sentence because he can't function outside the prison. But after Brubaker leaves, Purcell takes Abe, walks him to Caldwell and Spinell, and they proceed to torture him. They wrap his toes in stripped wire and wind up a generator to electrocute him. Then we cut back to the meeting with the prison board, where Deech, this squinty-eyed jerk guy, the mayor from jaws Yeah. And he's playing basically the exact same guy yeah. here. And uh, he's complaining that the crop yield is down 40% since Brew Baker took over, in effect, admitting that he entrusted Huey with the mission of drenching the kerosene crops and uh, giving them a financial reason to fire Brew Baker. Brew Baker says, If you give me a year, I can promise you a surplus of potentially $150,000. And they're like, Oh, that's great. Well, all we'll all we we'll need to do is figure out where we're going to spend it over at wall street to like get the best return and he says well no i think we should recycle it into the facility and d just smile very quickly fades he's not interested in this plan See,
1: this is where you would i know Baker don't compromise yeah but this is where you would compromise was like yeah you get some and the prison would get some
2: sure this is this is a mutually no, beneficial you don't arrangement. compromise with these people because they're not going to compromise with you that's the whole point is that they're just going to kill you if they get the chance so they need a new boiler another board member points out that that purchase has already been approved and he says how come nobody in your office will answer any of my calls i need the money to actually make the purchase and they claim to be working on it brubaker is reprimanded for canceling woody's age-old contract but there was never actually a contract it was just an agreement for slave labor and he's then taken to task for assaulting the doctor and firing a state employee deech accuses brubaker of liking the men because they're reckless like he is and it just makes me so angry <laughs> I,
1: and i, I think the, also the implication is it was being a homophobic
2: yeah. remark. mark so lillian agrees that the men are to be treated like humans that brubaker is not wrong that it's their responsibility as the people running the prison to make sure that these people are treated properly and the board jokes about a bunch of luxury items they might as well add oh why don't we give them all the bubble bath and why don't we give them all this great stuff And then Brubaker says, maybe a roof that won't collapse on their heads and kill them. And Deitch's patience basically runs out with this comment and he's like, that's enough. And Brubaker says, you know that roof wasn't insured? You know, we have this whole laundry list of farming equipment that is. And for some reason, Deitch is very quick to admit that he personally approved all of those insurance policies and he thought they were very sensible. But Brubaker then explains that not only did his own company sell the policies to the prison, but the prison doesn't have any of that equipment Which Dietsch must have known, or else why would he sell those insurance policies? Like the whole point of selling the insurance policy is that you know that the thing isn't there. So why would you say, I personally signed off on those to just completely condemn yourself? But nobody here cares anyway. Brubaker's the only person who cares at this table. So he basically stands up and says, "I I have more important things to do than sit here and argue with you people. So he gets up to leave. And Lulian follows him out. And tells him again, you know, you need to play ball with these people if you want to make any kind of meaningful progress. And she follows him out into the parking lot where he thinks for a second that he locked his keys in the car. Well, he did, but... <laughs> well, they're not locked in. They're just in the car because she gets in from the opposite side. I'm not sure what the implication of, the, like, what what is the metaphor of that? Like, is she smarter than him? Because I don't think... I, I think that, that he's
1: seeing an obstacle of which he thinks that there's no way around and right. she's trying to show him, like... Look, there are other ways of doing things. You are not thinking things through,
2: you're not looking at the whole picture. Yeah. But I but I think it conflicts with the message of the film later, which is that you shouldn't compromise. Like that's the know. message I, I get. Don't, I don't, I don't know that's, that the, that's the case at all. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think because that's true.
0: I think if I, I, I think that Richard's right here where if you had taken the opportunity to maybe find some opportunities to compromise, you could have stayed in this prison longer and made more of a difference longer.
2: I don't get that message from it but we'll, we'll, get we'll get there, get there more we'll get later there. back at his living quarters on the prison grounds brubaker falls asleep drinking on his porch in the morning he notices a corpse dangling from a nearby flagpole from underneath he confirms this is abraham dead before he can point brubaker to the burying grounds and he immediately starts to untie the body which he should not do he shouldn't touch this rope but presumably he unties him and lowers him all the way to the ground And then he gets into his office furious and he finds all the torture equipment just piled up on his desk. And Coombs enters and basically blames Brubaker for what happened. Not the people who did it, but Brubaker. And Coombs seems to regret the comment as soon as he makes it. Because as he's walking out of the office, someone else goes in to talk to him. He's like, just give him some time. He He deserves to sit for a second without people interrupting him. Coombs watches through the window into Brubaker's office as he picks up the Wires from the torture equipment and tests it on himself to try and feel some of what Abraham went through. Again, contaminating evidence in a murder case. Yeah,
1: the moment he touched it, it was like like you leave it on the desk, it's like I'm just gonna dust this for prints, and I'll know immediately yeah who did this. Because he's got fingerprints of everyone on file because yeah. it's a prison.
2: But uh he tests it on himself and surprisingly it hurts him. Brubaker puts everyone to work digging in search of these graves. Lillian Gray calls him immediately to stop because he's stepping on much bigger toes than he realizes now. Uh, He agrees to meet her privately at the fairgrounds at seven. And when he gets there, she's waiting with another member from the board, and a state senator from the earlier meeting shows up. The senator basically offers to release a bunch of new funds that would allow for the hiring of more employees and to take better care of the prisoners. And Brubaker says, How many bodies are buried there, senator? The senator reminds him that the field was a pauper's field before it was a prison and that grave robbing is a felony. So you don't want to end up in your own prison, basically. If you start digging up bodies, we're going to charge you with digging up bodies.
1: So yeah, when I, and I thought what this was going to go was that the senator was saying that there are bodies, but they're not prisoners. Not prisoners? Oh, okay. And, That'd uh, be so, much worse. Yeah, and so I thought for sure when they later on, you know, getting into that, but with that, the bodies that they do find, spoiler alert— uh we're gonna have prison uniforms oh okay and it'd be like you these poppers wore prison uniforms yeah Uh, that doesn't happen
2: he keeps talking about how he's gonna go further and further up the line eventually getting to the governor's office and they all admit the governor knows all about this (laughs) you you wouldn't be telling him anything new and he's helping to cover it up just like we are lillian doesn't a senator outrank the governor a state senator though not he's not like in the senate he's a state senator oh gotcha yeah i thought he was the state's no, senator he's a state senator but not of the two of the the body of the senate in that state got it there's they should just have a different word for that <laughs> i'm tired <laughs> of trying to explain the difference uh in these podcasts where we keep running and it's like is this a state senator or a senator for the state it's a <laughs> ship or a boat <laughs> yeah if you can put a senator on a state senator <laughs> lillian tells him that this is his chance to ask for more that he finally has leverage over them which is naive bullshit because he doesn't have any leverage at all <laughs> he goes back to digging and Baker notices something in the grass near the fence maybe uneven ground not entirely clear he seems to have forgotten that abraham did help tell him specifically that they were buried along a fence so he brings a bunch of men to dig there and hours later just as the rain starts coming down pretty hard they find several coffins all in a row i think four total here the trustees are arguing about it Floyd, the Joe Spinell character, thinks that the prison board will stop him, even though he's already found four bodies. So the prison board is obviously too late to stop this particular uh, discovery. Huey starts complaining that it's basically Abraham's fault for saying anything, and Coombs loses it on him. He busts open a pool cue like he's gonna stab him.
1: He, he does this amazing series of moves where he gets up out of his chair, kicks it back, <laughs> grabs the pool cue slams it down and then th- flips the table like just a position and like to make sure the the whole area is
2: clear between yeah. the two of them and he gets right up to him with the pool cue but then he comes to his senses and he's like i don't need to kill somebody while i'm in prison i probably have an end date i'm gonna get out eventually there's no reason to stab this guy to death right here he's not worth it but i like and i thought for sure like Hugh ron was gonna like scoff it off but he immediately goes... <laughs> he's terrified. Yeah,
1: he immediately goes into his room and calls, calls Eddie. And he's like, can I talk to you?
2: Babe? Yeah. <laughs> he's like, but I also, gotta get out of here. First, he's like, well, hold on now. Uh, that's not really what I meant. <laughs> but yeah, Coombs and uh, another trustee pull up to where Bruvicker's trying to deal with these coffins, and they say, hey, Huey just left. He took a truck, and he drove off, and he's probably hiding out. Probably at that diner, they tell him.
1: Yeah. Uh, I wanted to go back to something real quick, because sure. Raunch is asking eddie the, the knit cap guy to come with him oh right yeah a- and eddie's like no i'm not doing that yeah and i thought this was gonna pay off a little bit like that eddie was gonna be like eddie was coming around like no i want to see how this plays out i
2: do think the implication here is that he's starting to see Brubaker's side of it a little more and he feels like he's being treated more like a human and he's willing to give him the benefit of the doubt mm. But uh, you're right. It doesn't. It doesn't extend yeah, beyond this scene. Because,
1: but I mean, it still doesn't excuse what he did to Abraham. No, not at and, all. But and, and Purcell too. Was Purcell was
2: part of that, and Coombs was part of that too. In in as much as he was not letting this information get out. Yeah. And he wanted to keep Abraham there. They're all complicit partially.
1: What is in it for them to keep the bodies a secret?
2: What's in it for anyone to reveal or keep the bodies a secret?
1: Well, as I'm saying like, who cares if they find the body? It just shows that yeah, someone buried these prisoners 30 years ago.
2: But they, they but just they, know that
0: But they know how the system works here. They right. they know that there's a high probability that this prison board is going to find a way to put it back on the prisoners like, well, you guys killed a bunch of prisoners. So well, this
2: happened 30 years ago though. It wouldn't have been them. Maybe. But I think more likely it's just I know that the governor doesn't want these bodies found. And it's hell for me if the governor's mad. So, let's just keep everything hunky dory and make everything nice. It's the same problem that Lillian has, which is let's just be complicit in these terrible crimes that are happening, and uh, maybe things will be slightly better for us. So all these people are guilty by association, basically. Baker takes Coombs, and does he bring Coombs or does he bring Her- he brings Larry Lee? Is it just him and Larry Lee by themselves?
1: No, no. They, they, they split up into different groups because they, okay. they're they're trying to figure out where Huey Ranch has gone.
2: In multiple and, vehicles? Yeah. But Larry Lee and Brubaker take the truck yeah, and to they, the diner. To the diner, yeah. Larry Lee says he's going to go around back in case anyone tries to come out of the living quarters. And Brubaker goes in through the diner and he talks to the guy that runs the diner and he tells them to stay out. They're not open yet. He doesn't know who, where Huey is or where his sister is, and what he's talking about. He says, "What about through this door? What's through this door?" And he says, "That's my house, but that door doesn't work. Uh, no one's ever gone through there in a mm-hmm. long time, so don't even bother with it." And it's like, "What do you? You just said your house is through here. What do you mean the door doesn't work? Like yeah. the, the door doesn't open?" So he moves
1: <laughs> escalator temporarily stairs. Yeah, <laughs>
2: and he says, uh, "He says, well, you know, I ought to call the police." And he's like, "Okay, call the police, but for now, shut up." And he pushes through into the into the home he gets to close to the bedroom where huey is actually hiding there with carol he's basically using carol as a human shield Mm -hmm. as he moves slowly through the house and he notices larry lee outside and he opens a door to the front area where larry lee is waiting and he throws carol down to him to distract him and while larry is trying to catch her he shoots larry in the chest basically
1: yeah and he just as easily it could have shot carol he didn't yeah have much care who is who he was going to hit
2: yeah and brew baker hears these shots being fired and immediately shoots at huey who tries to return fire and ends up like hitting his own counter like stuff on his own counter that's exploding in in carol's counter in the kitchen he shoots huey and huey gets blasted through the window out into the yard so him and larry lee are both dead and carol's just sobbing in the corner Mm -hmm. because she's traumatized by everything that just happened who
1: would have thought this would happen if i dated a criminal
2: yeah
0: who's literally still in prison yeah
2: Yeah. and i sometimes go have sex with him at the prison in our in our secret illegal house (laughs) i didn't think this through back of the prison the board are getting testimony from a quote-unquote doctor that they paid for information on these coffins that have been dug up and he says you know we have a saying in in doctor school and that is that you can't tell how long a body has been dead ever so who knows (laughs) and brubaker shows up in the middle of this nonsense testimony they're like he's literally suggesting oh well maybe the maybe the people were dead before they were chopped up and they were and they the they were killed in some sort of a collapse like if the coffins collapsed and the mm-hmm. bodies were broken it's like that doesn't make any sense what you're talking about doesn't make any sense and they're like oh well it's a popper's grave and it's like poppers don't die in pieces though that doesn't yeah. <laughs> none of what you're saying makes sense and brubaker shows up in the middle of this nonsense they ask him what his priorities are and he says well He suggests basically the cost-cutting measure of just shooting inmates behind the courthouse when they're sentenced to come here. And the board does not like his tone, and he just turns around to leave. And again, Lillian follows him out of the room and insists everyone else wait behind. And they start the same argument that they had before anew, and she tries again to explain herself, eventually frustratingly just shouting, God damn it, I agree with you! And he replies, No, you don't. Not really. And we cut immediately to a new warden introducing himself to the prisoners as brubaker's leaving the prison and coombs sees him walking out and he walks away from his formation the trustees are all supposed to be lined up at the gate to tell brubaker that he was right all along and brubaker's like almost in tears to get this information from coombs Mm -hmm. because he cares what coombs thinks and he's trying to do what's right and the entire prison yard goes into the most epic slow clap (laughs) i've ever seen in anything as Brubaker is driven out of the prison and their lives. A quick epilogue of text explains that two years after Henry Brubaker was fired, 24 inmates, led by Richard Dickey Coombs, brought suit against Wakefield Prison, and that the court decided that the treatment of prisoners at Wakefield was unconstitutional and ordered that the prison be reformed or closed. The governor was not reelected. The undercover boss plot of the original story was made up, but it has been suggested that this plot device was inspired by Sing Sing prison warden Thomas Mott Osborne, who in 1913, under an assumed name, had himself committed to New York's Auburn State Penitentiary to see what, how the prisoners were being treated. But that's uh, that's where we end the film. It's it's very bittersweet. I was really hoping
1: for, because no, nothing's really changed. Yeah, like he he affected the prisoners' lives.
2: And, i mean in the they, long run according to the epilogue something was changed
1: yeah but i get and i guess he gave coombs the courage yeah to stand up to the
2: system he reminded them that they're people and that they have rights that they can fight for
1: yeah i, I was hoping for something some kind of button like uh not that that's not that about i mean like uh some i really like muffins and i don't don't like it when people don't get them yeah and i, and I was hoping nobody that, gets it in this movie yeah i think I was,
0: that's realistic though
1: yeah i know but i was hoping but that's that, sad I was hoping the new warden would say... We can't say, even
2: get comeuppance in our movies.
1: Yeah. I, I, th- I was hoping the new warden would say something like, uh, well, I'm, I'm putting an end to the trustee system. And then you would just see all the trustees go, oh,
2: crap.
1: Like, yeah. we now we've stepped on our own toes.
2: But I feel like, according to Baker's belief system, Lillian Gray is, is half as bad as everyone else at the table because she's willing to play along with their game. And that if no one was willing to play along with their game, they wouldn't get as far as they do.
0: Yeah, that's true, but everyone's in it for themselves.
2: Right. And that's the problem. But I don't see how she was right about anything. Like none, none of her strategies would have worked in the long run. Like when she thinks that they have leverage over the it's like if you dig up those bodies then uh then they're going to be screwed, so they don't want you to do that and it's like then he dug up the bodies and nobody cared.
1: Well, why what did she think was going to happen
2: by hiring Brubaker? did she hire him i don't know who hired him
0: the governor picked him
2: yeah but the governor knows about the bodies too so
0: well i think they picked him without knowing he was going to be doing this radically different from the way it's been done now but
2: wasn't that what he was brought in to do to to prison reform
0: yeah but i think that they brought him in to do her version of prison reform and that didn't go that way
2: yeah the compromise version yeah where it's like we'll give you one extra pickle a month and then you can die and we'll just kill you indiscriminately and bury you in our own prison this movie was intensely frustrating to watch the guy playing deech is doing a hell of a job though because i wanted to murder him the whole time yeah
1: murray hamilton and again the mayor from jaws yeah
0: (laughs) and never compare me to the jaws mayor
1: never uh but (laughs) i feel bad that murray hamilton like gets kind of placed into these kind of roles yeah He kind of reminds me of Hal Holbrook. Hal Holbrook oftentimes is is the
2: bad guy. Hal Holbrook is the good guy as often as he's the bad guy, though. You think? I think he was a good guy in Fog. In the (laughs) Fog. I think he was the one who was trying to, like, make up for the mistakes of his ancestors. I feel like he plays a nice guy in a lot of stuff I've seen. I actually don't think I see him as a bad guy very often.
1: Like Dirty Harry and Capricorn One. I named two things. (laughs) There you go.
2: But anyway... The director here was Stuart Rosenberg. He did another prison movie called Cool Hand Luke. Yeah, he did. If you've heard of it. Uh he also directed the first Amityville horror movie. Writer W.D. Richter is a badass. He wrote the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is the best version and it's just a phenomenal film. And he also wrote a little movie called Big Trouble in Little China. The story by Arthur A. Ross who co-wrote The Creature from the Black Lagoon. So he's like an old school writer, but he wrote the one that was not fictional, that was adapted into W.D. Richter's story.
0: Oh, I was like, there was an actual creature from the Black
2: Lagoon? <laughs> yes, that's a true story. You didn't know that? That's why The Shape of Water is a documentary. Yeah, That's the one that W.D. Richter adapted from The True Story. The uncredited story credit and nine days worth of directing were the work of Bob Rafelson, who directed Five Easy Pieces, Ahead, the Monkeys* movie, which he co-wrote with Jack Nicholson. Uh, The Postman Always Rings Twice, so that's three Jack Nicholson projects. Producer here was Ron Silverman. Ron Silverman produced Krull. He produced Shoot to Kill. And he was the grandfather of guest host Robert Leininger, who was in our Friday the 13th episode. Robert Redford was Henry Brubaker here. He's the Sundance Kid. He also uh, founded the Sundance Film Festival. He's in All the President's Men. I think maybe M. 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 Walsh's character is a reference to Woodward from mm. All the President's Men. He plays Alexander Pierce in the MCU. He also directed 1980s Best Picture winner, Ordinary People, which we'll be getting to soon. Yafet Koto was Richard Dickey Coombs. He's Parker from Alien. Mm-hmm. He plays Kananga in Live and Let Die. I yeah. think that's where he gets hit with the inflatable bullet. Yeah. And he just <laughs> floats away. I, I like him.
1: Explodes. I, I love him in. He's also really good in uh, Midnight Run.
2: Oh, yes. Uh, where he's the the uh, fbi agent who's on their tail yeah he's great jane alexander was lillian gray here she was nurse edna in the cider house rules she's uh dr grasnick in the america version of the ring and she plays margaret phelps in kramer versus kramer which i think is the other mother who they're friends with who's at the park when uh, the kid gets hurt mm. and then shows up as a character witness in court saying like oh well the kid got hurt and i was there and i saw it happen she's in that movie murray hamilton john deech we already mentioned before he's vaughn in jaws he's also mr robinson in the graduate also with dustin hoffman david keith was larry lee bullen he played andy mcgee in firestarter yeah he's sid warley in an officer and a gentleman and he plays major coonan in u-571 which has some incredible sound design
0: oh i really like that movie glad i saw that one in the theaters
2: yes that's a theater movie for sure morgan freeman was walter the death row inmate He has a weirdly small role in this movie. He doesn't really show up after they give him the is this his first movie or one of his first? Um, It's one of his first. It's not his first. I did see in the IMDb trivia called it his first credited role, but it's not. He had other feature roles before that. He obviously, he also hosted The Electric Company for a decade before this. Mm. He's in Shawshank, Bruce Almighty, Seven. He's Lucius Fox in the Chris Nolan Batman trilogy. Matt Clark here was Roy Purcell. He plays Chester the bartender in Back to the Future 3. He's the secretary of defense in Buckaroo Bonsai. And he plays Uncle Henry in Return to Oz. Richard Ward was Abraham Cook. He's the dad from The Jerk. And unfortunately, he passed away before this film was released. He actually died shortly after production in 1979. M. M. at Walsh was C.P. Woody Woodward. He plays Harve in Critters. He's Dr. Dolan in Fletch he's detective Visser and blood simple yeah that's he's great. one of
1: his uh, he's just, he gets
2: the most to do there he's great albert salmi was rory polk that's the new guy that's taking over as the uh warden at the end of the film he plays mr noonan danny noonan's father in caddyshack later this year he's also credited as e1 in escape from planet of the apes i don't know what that is yeah i know the movie really well but i don't know who
1: or what e1 is are
2: there a lot of humans in that movie or no
1: yeah in escape yeah yes uh in escape there it's mostly humans there are only three apes
2: yeah because i would have guessed that e1 was like a code name given to a prisoner yeah
0: an escapee perhaps
2: escapee one or something like that yeah don't not familiar with that one i've only seen the first planet of the apes movie and then the newer trilogy and he was also greel in dragon slayer which is coming out next year yeah uh, Joe Spinell was Floyd Birdwell. Uh, we just saw him in Cruising, the ninth Configuration, and Forbidden Zone before this. And he'll be back for Melvin and Howard and The First Deadly Sin and I think another one, The Little Dragons. Um, and then Maniac next year, so busy guy. Uh, Nathan George was Leon Edwards. Uh, that was one of the guys on the prison board. He played Washington in One floor Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I think he's one of the patients. And uh, he was Patrolman James in Pelham 123. Uh, Don Blakely was Jerome Boyd here. He played Abby in Defiance. And he played Wilson's Trainer in Pulp Fiction. That's the guy that Bruce Willis kills in the ring. Mm. Noble Willingham was Dr. Fenster. That was General Taylor in Good Morning Vietnam. He plays Clay Stone in City Slickers. And he plays, this is a great name, and he was also Zebulon Cardoza in the Hudsucker Proxy. The Coen brothers are really good with names.
1: Yeah.
0: What did you say? Noble Willingham is already a great name.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's fine on its own, but yeah. Zebulon Cardoza is amazing.
1: Uh, I like him in Ace Ventura where he plays the manager of the Miami Dolphins who's tasked oh, Courtney Cox is like, is like, I don't give a goddamn about that fish. Fillet and fast food if you want it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> is that when he's like, crawling around in the tank trying to look for clues no no
1: no it's it's, it's, he's look. he's yelling at courtney cox and uh uh the other guy and he goes like shit you know how superstitious these players are and the guy looks down at his keychain with the rabbit's foot on it (laughs) he tries to hide
2: (laughs) we also on the on the prison board have wilford brimley which i felt like he's a pretty big name to play such like an anonymous character on this board maybe it was just at the time but yeah uh,
1: i mean i don't think he was as big of a name at this point because even in china syndrome which was the year before that's true I, it was very small i never miss an opportunity to bring up the china syndrome <laughs>
2: uh, we've noticed but yeah he's he's great in this as just one of the grumpier board members who's like helping jump into the fight with uh Deej about how brew baker is just in love with all the prisoners and they deserve you know hot tubs and stuff what, I, do you,
0: what do you think he's most known from because to me he's most known for insurance commercials it's diabetes commercials or diabetes commercials not, that's it not yeah. quaker
1: oats i go to quaker
2: oats i think Did most you do people do quaker go, oats commercials mm-hmm. too i think it's just because of the way he says diabetes diabetes, <laughs> diabetes. That, <laughs> that people remember him for that specifically but not, not, like you don't go to the thing for you for, for acting you i go yes. to the thing but for real life I always think of those diabetes cases.
1: um i go to the natural uh, another robert redford
2: yeah robert redford <laughs> robert, robert, robert <laughs> i'm talking like
1: wolf brimley now sorry
2: uh or ben luckett in cocoon yes it's oh, probably yeah, second yeah. Yeah. to the yeah, thing yeah. for me um but he's also uh dr blair is the thing character uh ben luckett and cocoon pop fisher in the natural with robert redford four years <laughs> later and uh, he'll be back in borderline later this year And then we had J.C. Quinn was one of the barbers in the early haircutting scene. He was Sonny Dawson in The Abyss. He's Duncan in Maximum Overdrive. And he'll be back later this year in Gloria and Times Square. So we'll see more of him. Jerry Mayer was the other barber. And he played Professor Milstein in Simon, which I'm assuming that's just someone else from the school that they stole him from at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Rob Garrison played Pretty Boy. That's one of the inmates. He's Tommy in Karate Kids One, Two, and ah. the Cobra Kai series that's on YouTube right now. He's the guy who says, "Put him in a body bag, yeah!" In the final so he, fight. So he must have been movie. real young in this. Yeah, he's also Sayer in Prom Night later this year, and he plays a cop in a MacGyver episode. That's I'm pretty sure that's birthday. Mm. He's one of the ones that recognizes the flags, oh, uh, like yeah, the sailing yeah, yeah. flags as being a symbol. Of uh distress. The semaphore flags. Sure. There you go. Yeah. No, sem-
1: semaphore is a different no, semaphore is when you're making like
2: Pinafore like... is a <laughs> ship, right? Yeah. This was a I, I enjoyed this movie. Um it's very frustrating. It's like it's like one of those frustration comedies with Ben Stiller, but instead of just not wanting his in laws to hate him, it's about a guy trying to save a bunch of people's lives from Inherent racism and justice problems in the South and the prisons.
0: Yeah, I want to give this one a thumbs up. It it just—it's not—it's not not one of those real uplifting movies because you're like, "Wow, we're 40 years later and things aren't really any better."
2: (laughs) Yeah, but you can't (laughs) give it a thumbs down just because it's depressing. It has to be because it was a bad movie. Oh,
0: I know. I'm still going to give it a thumbs up. I'm just saying, I. I don't know that I'll be watching it again anytime no. real soon. <laughs>
2: I'm not in a rush to either. It's it's very depressing. But uh, I thought it was pretty accurate. I thought the characters all worked out pretty well. It's a thumbs up from me, for sure. Richard?
1: Uh, I also give it a thumbs up. I'm not super crazy about this movie. Yeah. But I was engaged. I did watch it. And I wasn't like at any point was like, sighing or checking my watch i was just like mm, all right you know this is this is a movie and it's- and
2: it checks all the boxes of a prison movie where it's mm-hmm. like everything's totally unfair there's local people that are making a bunch of money and
1: escape attempts
2: escape attempts and at least one prisoner is killed that's mm-hmm. for a requirement you have it in shawshank and cool hand luke and all over the place Every- they all have the same moments that you have to get to But I think this one's just as capably written and directed as those other ones.
0: It's a a very capably made movie. It looks really nice. It's very well shot. Yeah. So thumbs up.
2: All right. I am going to start us here. I'm putting this just below Last Married Couple and just above The Mountain Men. That's where it's going on mine.
1: Uh, For me, I am actually going to put this just above Night of the Juggler. Okay. And just below Tom Horn.
2: All right.
0: I am going just below The Mountain Men and just above Blues Brothers.
2: All right. There you go. I believe that's everything for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at com please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can support the show through patreon.com slash vintage video podcast. And on that note, here's a shout out to Aaron at the New Age Influencers podcast. Thanks for the kind words in your iTunes review. We hope you continue to enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Can't Stop the Music which IMDb calls a pseudo-autobiographical story of Disco's The Village People. We leave you now with a trailer for Can't Stop the Music. It's the musical
1: extravaganza that launches the 80s. It's Alan Carr's Can't Stop the Music. You can't stop the music. Once you see it, you'll know why you can't stop the glamour shake the milk the milk the shake do the, 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 the milk the 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 you can't stop yeah. the excitement
2: to stay the
0: The dancing. I love you to death. I love you to death. I love you to death, oh baby. Till there's nothing left, I want you to death. I, 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 I
1: love you. You can't stop the laughter. It's
0: magic night, magic's in the music. It's a magic. Night. magic magic but most of all you
1: can't stop the music
0: you can't stop the music can't stop, the music.
1: Can't stop the music Starring village people take
2: the heat from flame trying to feel probably for though you try in vain it's what she be Bruce know can't stop
0: the music nobody
1: can Steve gutenberg Sam Man, easy, co-starring do, do. Tammy Grimes June on Havoc radio, Barbara TV Rush out to be Davis Marilyn Sokol and a special appearance by
0: the Richie family
1: Once it begins, Nobody you can't stop, stop the
2: music. can't stop
1: the
2: music.
1: The new musical Sounds of the 80s are composed and produced by Chuck Porelli. An EMI film.